0: Welcome to Pick Up and Deliver, the podcast where I pick up my audio recorder when I get off the train and deliver an episode to you while I walk home. I'm Brendan Riley. Well, good afternoon, listeners. It is a lovely day here in suburban Chicago, and I am re-recording yesterday's episode because I thought that I hit record. I even remember getting the phone out and hitting record, but somehow it did not record. So I am, uh, maybe I'll be smoother since I have done this episode once already, but we'll see, maybe not. I did once have to do an episode three times because I had two failures, but hopefully that won't be today. So what am I doing for the second time? What cool, incredible content are you getting? Well, that's right, it's your favorite time and mine. It's shooting from the hip, triple shot. That's right. For those of you who are new listeners, shooting from the hip is a segment I do on some episodes where I react to first or maybe first and second plays of various games. And then I just talk about what I think of the game from an early impression. You know, like I'm shooting from the hip without a lot of aiming or thoughtfulness. I generally call it a triple shot because I wait until I have three games to share in this way because usually five minutes is enough time to give you first impressions and if i go longer than that i don't i don't really have a review to give i've only played the game once or twice so there you are so shooting from the hip triple shot welcome aboard today we're going to be talking about three games i've played in the last few weeks i realize it's been a long time since i did one of these episodes two and a half weeks maybe which is generally a long time for me usually i do not quite one a week but pretty close so glad to uh back on the horse the first game i want to talk about today is 221b baker street now this is a classic game that's been out since the 1980s i got my copy for two dollars from goodwill and i will say this was a bit of a nostalgia pull for me when i was a kid going to visit my friend titus and staying over at his house his family had a lot of uh british stuff i'd say they were anglophiles anglophiles in the best way one of the things they had at their house was a copy of 221b baker street and i always thought it looked pretty cool but we never got to play it. So that's been one of those things. When I was a kid, I always thought that looked cool and I've always wanted it. Well, I got my own copy and we busted it out last week. So I will say it was fine. If you haven't played before, it is a game with a board in the middle and you play competing members of the, uh, of Sherlock's inner circle, perhaps Dr. Watson, perhaps Irene Adler, perhaps the Baker Street Irregulars, and you are trying to solve a crime before Sherlock does. And then you run back to Baker Street and you tell Sherlock, what your solution was. The game plays where you roll a die to move, surprise. And (laughs) then when you get to one of the significant spaces on the board, you're going to find out the clue for the mystery. At the beginning, there's a card that everybody reads that kind of gives you the start of the mystery. And then when you get to a significant location, like let's say a hotel or a nightclub or the docks, then on the card it will give you a number, and there's a big book of entries and you look up the number and that will read to you the information you got from that location. You also have police tokens and you have uh, lockpicks, which allow you to secure a location from another player. They wouldn't be able to look at it. If you put a police token there, they they can't look at it and if if they have a lockpick, they can remove the police token. You can get more police tokens by visiting Scotland Yard and more lockpicks by visiting I think there's a locksmith actually. There's also a carriage house that moves you around the board. It was fine. The mystery was interesting enough, but really it, um, there were three or four crucial clues out of the nine or 10 locations. And if you got those three or four, then you definitely knew the answer. There were a couple misleading clues where if you got that one and didn't get another, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily go down the right path. So it was a pretty interesting mystery. You know, it it did suffer from the problem that roll and move games suffer from, which is uneven movement, right? Anytime you're playing a game where... You roll a die to move, then the question of how come I get to move six spaces and you only get to move one becomes a crucial issue in thinking about the gameplay. And this game never solves that. It does make the end game sort of a race. We had two of the three of us who knew the answer to the case, and we're racing back to Sherlock, and the dice rolling determined it. I won, so of course the game is awesome. Just kidding. Um, but, you know, having it come down to a die roll was not my favorite thing, although it really did add a bit of spice to the game which otherwise wouldn't have had it. Now, for those of you who are aficionados of various detective games, some of this may sound very similar to Watson and Holmes, and I would agree. It is very similar to Watson and Holmes, to the point that I would wonder if Watson and Holmes was an attempt to revise and update 221B Baker Street. Because I found myself saying, if I were gonna revise and update 221B Baker Street, what I'd do is make all the locations uh, equidistant, and use cards on those locations to be the clues instead of having the clues in a book. And you could still use the lock tokens, but you know, maybe you would have some mechanism where you could spend resources to get to the locations first. Well, boom, that is, that is an update of 221, 221 b Baker Street. That said, this game did have its charms. It, it, the mystery was fun. It only took about a half an hour to play or maybe a little less, so it's not a deep time commitment and it's short enough that the roll and move doesn't feel horrible. I think the base game came with something like 15 scenario cards and a book full of answers. And then it did come with a second set. I should say, in my copy, there was a second set that looks like it's case set number six. So I'm not sure if they've released five other expansions or four other expansions to this game, but uh, I would believe it. Like I said, all in all, a pleasant time. Nice bit of uh, collect- uh, memor- memorabilia to go with my collection of Sherlock Holmes themed games, but probably not a game I'm gonna pursue avidly. More, it'll be something I'll, I'll pull out on occasion just because it's amusing. So that's 221B Baker Street. The second game I, want, game I want to talk about is one, it's in the format I don't usually report on, which is digital. I do play a lot of asynchronous games, I've mentioned that a number of times, but I often don't feel like I've played the games enough to be able to give even a shooting from the hip response to them. That said, sometimes I do. Sometimes, for whatever reason, I feel like I've engaged enough with the game that I can give a shooting from the hip response, and thus I will. And uh, in that regard, I'm going to share my experience playing Rajas of the Ganges, the Dice Charmers. You know, the Dice Charmers is a roll-and-write game based on the uh, larger Euro game, Rajahs of the Ganges. It maintains a lot of the same mechanisms, just you know, condensed down into roll-and-write form. Essentially in this game, you play, I don't know, British Imperialists or something, in India, and you are trying to raise, or your Raj, your your, uh, Indian leaders I guess, uh, trying to raise money and fame. You have two separate tracks, the money track and the fame track, and when your score marker on each of them meet, or in the the case of the Dice Charmers, when the line you're drawing on each of them cross, then the game over, the game is over, and the person whose line crossed the farthest wins. Uh, Like a lot of, sort of, it's in the in the realm of the ganshan clever boxes that you check off that cause cascading other boxes roll and write genre Uh, in this one you have a series of rajas who you can get you can use and they give you special powers you have a marketplace of goods where you can sell goods and if you sell the right numbers of goods you get special powers you have a river that you can move along and when you when you move along the river it triggers actions in the other places and uh When you trigger the right numbers of them, you get special powers, and then you have the grid of locations, which you're drawing paths between, and whenever you encounter one of the different kinds of buildings, it can trigger special powers. So it's very much a game of choosing a thing, causing a thing to happen, and as the game goes on, the uh, overlapping bonuses kind of accelerate, and it becomes pretty fun. I had a good time with this one. I found it a little bit less inscrutable than the very abstracted ganshan clever or twice as clever i haven't played clever cubed yet but my guess is that that is the same in that it's just boxes you're checking off and i felt like this little hint of theme added enough that i was able to kind of use the boxes you're checking off in an interesting way that said i do not like the theme this is true of rajas of the ganges as well i'm not a big fan of I mean, particularly the... the, 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 there's a Krishna track where you have a a depiction of of a Hindu god and you're marking off stuff there. It doesn't feel like the narrative of the game really engages with the place that it is, in which case it feels just like using a place as a decoration. And that that doesn't feel great to me. Uh, This was a problem I had with the original Rajas of the Ganges as well, and it continues to be a problem for me with the Dice Charmers as well as the name the Dice Charmer seems to play on the stereotype of the Indian Snake Charmer, which itself is problematic. So, uh, enjoyed my plays of Rajas, of the Ganges, the Dice Charmers. I probably would play if invited. Again, definitely won't be buying it. So the third game I wanted to talk about today is Terraforming Mars, the Ares Expedition. Uh, Terraforming Mars is of course one of my favorite games. It's a delightful, drafting and tableau building game with really interesting mapping mechanisms and lots of overlapping science cards that allow you to build, or overlapping cards that allow you to build interesting engines. Then there's another game called Race for the Galaxy, in which you have a hand of cards and you use a second set of action cards to pick one action each round, and uh, every action that got picked by any player gets performed by every player. but the action that you particularly picked, you get a bonus with. So this means some rounds, everybody picks the same action, or almost everybody picks the same action, and there's only one or two phases in the round. Other rounds, if everybody picks different actions, you could have three or four phases in a round. The game is themed, so that's uh, Race for the Galaxy. Um, Terraforming Mars, the Ares Expedition, is essentially if Race for the Galaxy were themed around Terraforming Mars. In uh, this version of Terraforming Mars, we've gotten rid of the board where you're building all the forests and cities, and now we just have a tracking board where you track the oxygen and the heat and your points and the number of oceans that have been built. Nine is the answer. You still have the same goal. The goal is to get as many points as you can while advancing the shared, shared goals of oxygen, heat, and oceans. Once all of those things have been maxed out, the game ends and the person who has the most points wins. Like Race for the Galaxy, this game has different phases. In each of these phases, you get to play a certain kind of card. So there's, the first phase is green, you can play a green card. Second phase is blue, you can play a blue card. Third phase is actions, meaning that you can activate things on your blue cards. Uh, fourth phase is, uh, is, um, There's a red, you can play red cards. Actually, I think when you're playing blue cards, you play blue or red. Uh, And then the fourth phase is production. This is the biggest difference from the other Terraforming Mars is in the base game, every round you get new resources. In Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, you only get resources. You only produce when someone plays the production action, which means that you could have multiple rounds where you don't produce. If you're counting on somebody else to trigger production for you, you could be out of luck. On the other hand, triggering production helps everybody else. So there's an interesting tension there. Um, the tableau building is pretty interesting in the game. There's lots of good cards. The biggest, uh, maybe the second biggest change after getting rid of the board is the art. All of these cards have a consistent look in the art. It's uh, high quality and uh, interesting to look at. It's a shame that they can't, I mean they probably could, release update packs for the original Terraforming Mars in which they retrofit this art back into the original game, or perhaps they release new, new versions of the art in the game. The problem is that with all the expansions, there's just a ton of, ton of cards for the main game of Terraforming Mars. It would be an excessive experience to, um, to make new art for all those cards. That said, I bet people would buy them. I would heavily consider buying them, frankly. So that's Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition. It's a fun game, but I would not say if I if I were evaluating, which I guess I am, I would not say it's better than either Terraforming Mars or Race for the Galaxy. The one difference would be, if you really want that Terraforming Mars feel, I feel like this game does capture a lot of that feeling. The production tracks that the game uses are very reminiscent of the base game, and one of the big differences between Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition and Race for the Galaxy, Race for the Galaxy, when you produce, you just have a card that does, or you have cards that do production and there's one resource that's cards so when you're making things you're you're always using cards to do a whole bunch of different things in aries expedition you have a bunch of cubes that go on these production tracks and those production tracks become the way that you keep track of what you're doing you also do have money tokens so as you are generating money you get to create that money uh one of the big differences in in uh this game is. You don't create any steel or titanium the way you do in the original game. Instead, having steel or titanium resources just gives you a discount every time you use steel or titanium cards. So if you have two steel and you build a building card, you get to take, I think, four, four cost or two cost off the building card because you have two steel. So that is a nice way to balance what could otherwise get out of control as a mechanism. You're have to, having to constantly pay attention to how much of whatever people have used. It's nice to be able to avoid that. Um, yeah. So like, I, and the other big difference is that Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition is much shorter. It took us about two hours, maybe a little bit more, and that was with four players who were all brand new. Although we did have an experienced player sort of running the game for us. I felt a little bad for him, our friend Alan Greenberg, because It was his game and he brought it and he wanted to uh play it but we had three other people and or we had four other people and so he sat out and just taught it to us and helped us run it which was very nice but that meant he didn't get to play which is a bummer for him uh like i said the game took about two hours and that was with new players i imagine with experienced players it's probably an hour and a half maybe a little shorter even because of the simultaneous play element uh, and it all depends on how quickly people pursue the goals. And that is much shorter than Terraforming Mars, which generally runs three to four hours, and just takes longer. So that is, a, that is the interesting um, dynamic between the two from the Terraforming Mars side. On the other hand, you don't get the cool board element, you don't get the placing of forests, you don't get the, um, you don't get the building of cities, all of that is gone. And I think that is a crucial part of the game that I find really, attra- uh, really attractive and fun. You also don't, in this one, you don't have the achievements, you don't have the uh, global achievements, nor do you have the awards. And I think, again, those provide a crucial bit of st- strategy that really is worth pursuing. Uh, and from that regard, I would say uh, Ares Expedition is the lesser game for those, fl- for those faults. Uh, in the same way, from the other side, Race for the Galaxy is really efficient and tight and takes about a half an hour to play, which again, is a factor I find very comforting and fun, as opposed to the the longer game of Ares Expedition. If you're really in the mood for that kind of card game, Roll for the Galaxy is for you. But Ares Expedition is definitely fun, and I would happily play it again if somebody brought it out. So what do you think of any of these games I've mentioned today? There's a place you can let me know, and that's on Board Game Geek in Guild 3269, which is the Pick Up and Deliver Guild. You can let me know what you think of the games, and uh, when you've played them. You could also go there to tell me what you've been playing lately and just converse with the other people who listen to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can send me a BoardGameGeek mail message to the username wombat929, or you could email me brendan at rattleboxgames. That'll get right to me as well. Thanks for joining me today. I hope that your next walk is as pleasant as mine was. Bye bye. In particular, the phrase, the Dice Charmers, also carries some problems. That's a dog. Brought to you by Rattlebox Games.